Our scripture reading this morning is coming from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, taking a break from our work through Revelation. And again, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Please feel free to follow along. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Good morning. In just a minute, we're going to have Worship Kids style and dismiss the kids. But first, sorry, I see Brenda getting ready to go out and teach. I want kids, if you're going to Worship Kids style, or if you're not, you can go back home. Come here for just a minute and come up front with me because we're going to, real quick, come here. (laughs) Um, Because we're doing, we're talking about We Are the Church here in just a minute. and, um, And I was reflecting that it's unfortunate that you guys won't be in here during the sermon. So, real quick, everybody, let's just be clear that these brothers and sisters are a part of our body as well. And let's be faithful in encouraging them, and caring for them, and teaching them, and learning from them as well. Now you guys can head out to Worship Kids style, and we'll jump into the sermon. I'm laughing because it's my son that tripped and fell, not somebody else's. Um, So this morning, let's pray, and then we'll turn to—we'll explain what's going on. God and Father, I thank you for your love for us and for calling us together as your people, and pray that you would be with us now as we sit under your word, even though we are sinners. Help us to learn from it. Be with me, even though I am a sinner, as I preach it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are taking a pause from our Revelation sermon series for three weeks— And I know some of you who like to read ahead are very disappointed, and we will come back in Revelation 14 in three weeks. But there is a conversation that I kind of want us to pause and have. Um, And um, one of the reasons that I want us to do it is because of the realities of Elizabeth and Mai's lives as we look forward into the coming season of things. And... um, If you're a visitor with us, again, welcome, and we'll be jumping in. But because of her cancer, I am very mindful of, and I am often asked by you all about the challenges that will be coming. And there will be a season that is coming when I will be less able to be engaged with some ministry stuff. And that, to be clear, this is not like announcing that season is starting. That's still some months in the future, right? We don't know exactly when. But I want to take a couple minutes now and for just a couple Sundays and have a set of conversations that help us think through framing what that season will be like for us as a church. Because I think that there's actually some real opportunities in the midst of that hard season 
but we need to name and recognize that. And what I kept thinking about as I thought about taking a little time out to do this is this conversation with this guy who's a pastor that happened a couple years ago um, where he had just taken over at this church. And this church, um, it had had a a rough run. So it was a church plant, like they had sent out a core group from another church to start a new church. And... um, and it started, and things were good, and then like a year into the church plant, uh, we ended up having to remove the pastor for immorality. Um, and so he was defrocked, and you know, that's a huge blow to the church. And then they have, you know, searching for a pastor, and they get this new guy who comes in, who was a good guy, but because of just unexpected circumstances that arose for him, he had to leave after just a couple years. And then it's a year and a half, and this guy had just taken over the church. And if you're a pastor, you, you are like, is that church going to survive, right? And that was the question that, that the pastors kind of had for him was like, man, like, are they like, you know, is there anybody there? Like, are they, are they going to make it? And he said, you know, the thing is that year on year for the last five years, this church has grown every year. <laughs> even though, you know, they had had this like crazy, brutal roller coaster. Even the years when there was nobody there leading them, they were, they were growing. And we were just like, how is that possible? And his answer was that he's like, well, I'm still figuring out what, you know, some of that myself. But what strikes me even coming into this church is they just have this deep sense that they are the church. They are the church. And so I just want us to reflect for a couple weeks on that theme. We're going to look at this text from Ephesians first and see how it pictures the church and talk about the sort of model of the church it communicates and then we're just going to talk practically about a whole bunch of ways that we can think about living into that. So first, let's look at Ephesians 4. Um, and I should say, before we read this, so I don't believe in life verses. Some people have life verses, and I always feel like the whole Bible should kind of be your life verse. But it is true in ministry that this passage is probably the one I turn to more than any other when I think about how Scripture pictures ministry. Let's walk through it. So start in verse 11. It says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So Paul starts by talking about the leaders of the church, and that's part of why I want us to reflect on this, because there's a certain biblical understanding of the relationship of leaders and churches that we can get wrong, and that I want us to have right as we think about this coming season. But he's talking about the leaders, right? The apostles and the prophets were the kind of foundational leaders of the church. Paul's part of the apostles who were the initial people that Jesus commissioned to lead. And then flowing out of that, there's the evangelists and shepherds and teachers, which for our purposes, when we think about our world, this is sort of saying, you could just say that God gave kind of pastors and leaders in the church, right? He gave them, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry building up the body of Christ. Now, this is really the crucial verse to this passage, and we need to make sure if you just are reading it without paying attention, you tend to, th- to read it as if it's saying that the, the leaders of the church are supposed to do three things. Equip the saints, do ministry, build up the body of Christ. But look, if, you didn't, if that's how you read it, because that's definitely not what it says. What it says is that the leaders of the church have one role, which is to equip the saints— And then the saints have two tasks. So saints meaning the church as a whole has two tasks, which is the work of ministry and building up the body of Christ. We're going to come back to that idea in just a minute, but let's keep reading. So Ephesians 4.13, Paul tells us the goal of this. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of 
knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so says we're all supposed to be doing this, right? We're building up the body of Christ together until all of us together become, in a sense, Jesus. He uses all these different images, the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, which he doesn't mean as opposed to womanhood, just to be clear, but he means as opposed to boyishness, right? He's talking about growing mature to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he's saying that we together, importantly, we all together are supposed to grow up into this thing that really is sort of the, the, the image and the measure of Jesus in the world as a body. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And again, this is part of his description of the whole church. So we're supposed to all together grow into a kind of maturity that includes discernment, and that includes a sort of differentiation from the world around us. Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Again, we're growing up into Jesus. When we say Jesus is the head of the church, which you'll hear me say sometimes, that actually means two things. One, it means that he's in charge of the church, right? Jesus is the head pastor of the church. He's the, the guy who runs things, and we are all supposed to submit to his authority. But two, he's also the head of the church in the sense that Jesus' body on earth, is in a real sense, is supposed to be our community and us together in the world. That Jesus was incarnate um, in the flesh, you know, and then he ascended into heaven, and now he's the head, and the way he's now incarnate in the world is through the church. And then in verse 16, Paul again explains how, and this again is crucial. He says, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And again, notice there, he's using this image of a body, but the stress throughout it is it's sort of every part building us up together. Right? That each joint has to, um, has to be joined together and that it's equipped with. Every part is doing its work, and then the body, therefore, grows and builds itself up. Just to review, so Paul says God gave pastors to equip the church, and then the church he's calling as they're equipped to do the work of ministry and build up the body. And as each saint engages with that calling, the church grows together um, and becomes more like Jesus. And each saint is doing that by doing their part to help the body grow. And that's what turns the church into this more and more Christ-in-the-world kind of thing. All right? So that's this picture from Ephesians 4. Now let me try to describe what that means when we think about the church. And to do that, I want to describe two models. One is the wrong model, but I think a common one that people in our world slip into. And then the other one is the model that Paul is describing. The wrong model, which is, I guess, spoilers, maybe I should have just played coy, and, but, but is what, what I'm going to call the consumer model. The consumer model. And in that model, here's how it works. The church is pictured as this entity separate from us that provides us with religious services. Now, those services could include teaching or encouragement or a good worship experience or ministry and care. But the key thing is that in that model, the church is not the people who attend it. Right? The church is this separate thing, 
And our job when we attend it is to kind of, you know, pay financially to support it, maybe volunteer and show up at some things. But then the church's job is to do the work of ministry and, you know, build itself up and do that. And there's three things we should say about that model. The first is that it can take a lot of forms. I want to say that before we critique it, because I think when we hear that, what most of us picture is sort of like this stereotypical megachurch with smoke machines and laser lights and whatever. And there are some megachurches that are absolutely very consumer-driven, although there are some that are seeking not to be. But it is just as common in small churches. I remember a friend um, that he took his first call out of seminary, and it was at this little, really struggling church of like, 40, 50 people on a Sunday, very elderly. But he talked about how he got them all together and sat them down and was like, guys, like, we need to, you know, try to address this and talk about how we can reach people and, you know, and, and, you know, and grow and, you know, and try to connect with people. And one of the the core um, leaders in the church, she said to him, she said, that's not our job. That's what we hired you for, (laughs) right? And that's the consumer model again, right? The idea that, like, we aren't the church, that there's this entity apart from us that is. The second note, like we've said, is that it is not biblical, and Ephesians 4 shows why. If the church is full of people who come and aren't being a part of that body, right? Paul says each member needs to be kind of doing its work in order to build up the church. If the church is full of people who are showing up and not doing that work of building up the body, it's failing to be the church. And then one last note, because part of what I want us to reflect on is the importance of having a right understanding of what I can and can't do for y'all because of the season that we're heading into. The consumer model is terrible for pastors. It wrecks them in one of two ways. Either one, it wrecks them because it tries to put the whole burden of being the church on one person's shoulders, which is bad because they fail and they feel like they've, you know, failed at this calling. Or two, it wrecks pastors because they sort of seed and then they they get puffed up you know and 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 start to think that they're the like heroes that save everything and it i should just stress i feel like pastors don't admit this but um while pastors can can ought to be faithful and we'll talk about you know my role in the church in a minute uh, it is very limited what a pastor can actually do for a church a lot of pastors have delusions that they can do a lot of things but i always remember tim keller who was one of my favorite pastors hearing him talk about he had two he had two churches that he pastored first he pastored this church out in rural virginia and then he pastored he planted this church in new york city and i remember him saying so you know he he had this church in rural virginia for like a little over 10 years he pastors this church he's like you know we saw like very very modest growth basically just you know kind of held stable but it was good you know we, we 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 were christians together like it was beautiful but nothing remarkable happened and then he plans redeemer and 10 years later it's like thousands of people in new york city coming to this church and because tim keller does not buy the hype that a lot of pastors do um his comment was he's like the thing is I didn't do anything different at those two churches, you know. I mean, of course, like, you know, culturally I was sensitive, but I just did the same stuff, and, you know, and these things happen. And the point of that for him was to say, like, you shouldn't, pastors shouldn't, and congregations shouldn't buy the hype a lot of pastors offer that they can do that. But that said, it's a consumer model, right? Biblical model is what I'm going to call the ownership model. The ownership model. And here's how it works. First, it would just centrally say the church is us together as a community. It is not the staff. It is not the building. It is not a place that you go. The church is God's people living as God's people all the time. Um, I mean, 
it, we're a family is one of scripture's images, right? And this is like family dinner or a reunion or something, right? You know, that we come together for every week. And gathered worship, which is what we're doing here, is very important. But, but when you're like going to Sunday dinner with your family, you do not say, well, I'm going to family now. Right? You recognize you are the family, right? And you go to this gathering. And the, the church is the same thing. Even this gathering is not church. We are the church as this community of people. Now, in that model, that means each of us has a role to play. Each of us has a calling and job. And I don't just mean a formal job, right? I don't just mean that you have some title or on some committee. But you have a specific thing that you're called to do. And in that model, we are all ministers. Again, in verse 12, which I said was kind of the key verse, notice that it says that, that the leaders of the church equip the saints for the work of ministry. So I'm not the, the minister, right? Each of us are called to be ministers of Christ in the world. You might be wondering, given that, why I have a job then and what pastors and leaders are for. And there's two answers to that in Scripture. One is to help lead the church in the sense of hopefully showing people the direction that we're supposed to move and in the sense of making hard decisions and watching over the people of the church. That's what the author of Hebrews talks about when he he says, obey your leaders and submit to them for their keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. But just to stress, while I am a leader of Kish, I'm not the leader of Kish even in that sense. We are led by a team of elders and those elders are mostly appointed from among, you know, the congregation. They're not, they're not your representatives, just to be clear. It's not, it's not like Congress. They're, but our calling is to look for those who are qualified and called by Jesus to lead us. And then we, we you know, we appoint them as elders and follow them. Um, but, but that's part of it, right? I'm an elder in that sense. And that is an important role in the life of the church. Um, and then I'm specifically a pastor or what we call a teaching elder. In scripture, there's this sense that certain elders are then appointed to, um, to, to lead the church in teaching. Um, and biblically, here's kind of the job description of that pastor. It is to teach God's word, to pray for the church, to shepherd people towards the truth, to protect people from false teaching, and to seek to live an exemplary life before the church and the world. That is what scripture says a pastor is called to do. And on the one hand, that is a serious calling, and I take that very seriously. Um, and scripture is very serious about the fact that failing to do that is, um, yeah, I mean, we will be judged more harshly, James says. But on the flip side of that, that list biblically is sort of my role in the church. And yes, I mean, I'm an employee and do some like, you know, administrative things to help the, the wheel spin. And I am a member of the church, just like each of you, so I'm trying to use my gifts to minister. But um, the reason I'm stressing that is, again, because... In the biblical model, the ownership model, um, like, I'm not the CEO. I think that's how a lot of people think about the church. I'm not, like, the super guy doing the ministry, right? The church is a co-op, and I have a specific job, and each of us has a specific calling. But, um, but that is the way that Scripture pictures the church. Now let me—that's the idea. Now let me just say, here's why— I think it's really important that we recognize those two models. Um, if we are operating in the consumer model, then the reality of our life situation and Elizabeth's cancer means that, um, that 
that, that will, you know, be terrible for the church, right? That will gut the church. Because in that consumer model, the church is largely driven by the sort of people up front. They're the ones who, um, who drive the thing. But in the ownership model, that is not the case. It is us all together who are being the church. And yes, like, I, I hope I have some gifts that are blessings to people, and I know that that, you know— like, like, of course, you're like, well, I hope people miss me, you know, when I'm not able to be as engaged. But, but I have enormous hope because all of us, as we live into that calling, are doing the work of ministry. Because of that, there's three questions that I'm going to ask us to consider. Three questions that I want us to just be pondering now, but also as we think about the coming seasons and some of those challenges. The first question is, how do I long for Kish to be more like Jesus? How do I long for Kish, our church, to be more like Jesus. Now, importantly, that's more like Jesus, not more according to my preferences, right? If your answer is like, well, I think we should decorate it differently, or, you know, like, it's not, how can I make it more pleasing to myself? But when we say, Jesus has all these callings for the church, what does your heart beat with? What, are, what is the part of that that you really long to see the church grow in? And then the other two questions, how can I help make this a reality? How can I help others make this a reality? Both of those questions are really important. On one level, because of the ownership model, we, we ought to take personal responsibility for the things in the church. I mean, whenever someone comes and says, uh, why isn't the church doing this? You know, my question is always like, well, how are you doing it? <laughs> you know, like, like do you want to, you know, or, or how can I help you so that you can engage and do this thing? And there's validity to that. But the second question is also really important. Because, because sometimes, even if we're engaging, we can fail to recognize that we are a body, and that there's a lot of stuff that I can't do, but that if I'm in relationship with others and we work together, like, we're really able to do and grow in. So those are the three questions. And those questions exist because in that ownership model, think about this, the ideal church should be engaged in dozens of different ways in ministry and care, and almost none of them would have been started by the people leading the church. In the ideal church, it will be engaged in dozens of different ways with ministry and care, and almost none of them will have been started by people like me. Which does not mean that I don't have a role to play in them, but that role is to equip and support the saints. Again, remember, that's the Ephesians 4 model, that the leaders of the church are there to equip and support the saints. Which means, practically, it means this. Like, I am terrible at mercy ministry. I, I mean, I worked for a church once that had me run mercy ministries, and I was bad at it. And, um... So if you come to me and you're like, Eric, why haven't you started a mercy ministry program? My answer will be, because I'm terrible at it. But if you come to me and say, Eric, like, I've got a heart for mercy ministry. A couple of us have been talking and we'd really like to do this thing. Then look, I will, I will pray for you. I will talk with you and counsel you. We will give you space. I will get up here and bang the drum for you. And I will try to recruit volunteers for you. And I will, we'll probably session our elders and give money. You know, like there's lots of ways we will support and equip that ministry. Um, but we are not the ones solely who are supposed to drive it. All of us are. So that's the big idea. That we are the church. We need to have ownership for this thing. And here's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. Whenever you give a big idea like that, it's easy to be like, I like that in theory, but what does that mean in practice? So we're going to move quickly. Don't, I'm about to stress a few of you out, but... Eight different examples of people uh, in different ways doing that, right? First, the church should be caring for the poor, right? We as the church should be caring for the poor in our communities. 
First of all, in every church, there are certain people who take responsibility for that. And one of the things I'm going to do as we walk through these examples is try to acknowledge some folks at Kish, but I'm not going to name anybody, so don't feel stressed. But you know what? It is awesome as a pastor. I will often go visit, like, shut-ins or people who are struggling or, you know, or people who are, you know, who are struggling with poverty. And I could name for you the three or four people who, who visit those folks just quietly without initiative. So you can take personal ownership for that. But you can also take ownership as a, as a community in a way that starts a ministry most successful Ministries to, you know, to the poor that I've encountered were not started by the leaders of the church. The Bread of Life in Valley, at Valley Covenant in Stillman, which is a soup, like a food pantry that we partner with. Do you know how that started? It started because there was a, a Bible study of young women with kids who would meet in a park once a week. And they noticed that there were families in that park who didn't, some of the kids didn't have food. And so they started making extra sandwiches and bringing them with them and serving a meal to these kids and then their parents in the park. And you've built on that and built on that layer by layer, and now you have this awesome ministry we support and some of you volunteer at. The church should be caring for the least of these, right? Not just the poor, but others who are left behind. A church I used to attend, there was this friendship between these two women, one of whom had a child with a disability, And her friend really realized how hard that was. You know, when you have kids with disabilities, it just wears you down and you feel like you never get a break. So her response was to recruit some people and start a thing where they would invite folks that had kids with disabilities to bring all their kids for an afternoon for like four hours and just hang out. And um, and they they called it respite care, right? To give them a break and to, to show love for those families. And I remember volunteering at that thing and being in this room, this crazy chaotic room with like 70 kids, right? right? And just looking around and just being so struck by the fact that this wasn't, you know, there wasn't some, you know, board meeting to start this thing. It was just this woman saw her friend in need and said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to bring some people along and do this. The church should be providing community and relationships where people are grown to be more like Jesus. We should be intentional about connecting with people and spurring people onward. We do that formally, of course, as a church. There's things, I mean, like small groups is a thing that most churches do to try to help promote that, that relationship. But even there, I don't know if you realize this, but the success or failure of a small group pretty much always depends on how much ownership the people in the small group take um, of, of the relationships there. I remember I was talking to a, um, a guy, well, heard him, I heard him speaking, and he, who had this really healthy small group ministry at their church, you know, and it was really remarkable. Like, everyone was in it, and he was reaching out to the community and stuff. And he said, here's how that happened. The way that happened is, you know, I started a small group ministry, and it was doing terribly, <laughs> except for this one group. You, you know, he's like, oh, you know, there, people were starting to, but there was this one group that was, like, bursting at the seams, and they, of their own initiative, sat down and said, you know what, like, Let's try to fix this thing. And so they decided, initially what they did is they split into three groups and started inviting other people in because they had this vision, right, for what this ministry could be. And then some of those groups started multiplying. And so, I mean, this pastor supported those people and tried to encourage them, but it was really just the initiative of these people in the church to say, let's create that community. The church should be welcoming to visitors and outsiders. If someone doesn't feel connected, that's our responsibility. And here I just want to thank... We have, um, obviously, formal greeters at Kish, but I am always so struck by just the, the, the informal greeters, the few of you who um, will come up to me after church and just be like, hey, like, I didn't get a chance to meet these visitors. Did, you know, they're making sure that I checked in with them and they want to know their names, um, or, the, you know, they're, they're keeping an eye out for people who, 
you know, aren't visiting with anyone and try to connect with them. That is the church being the church. The church should be raising up the next generation in the faith. Obviously, as parents, that's a part of our calling. Our children are, um, though, members of our whole church. That's why I had them come up to say, like, these are, you know, we are all, in a sense, connected to them as well. Um, I mean, here at Kish, even, most of our children's ministries are really driven by, um, by people that, are, that aren't the people running the church. I think about, you know, like Sunday school or worship kids style that's going on right now, or VBS, as um, I know they've started meeting and planning. I mean, that's just volunteers from the church drive that whole thing. And I, you know, pray at the beginning and try to meet parents afterwards, but it's, it's beautiful to see that. And, and that's also really true informally. I remember back in college, as part of campus ministries in college, and one of the things I started to notice was how you would have these groups of students that came from just certain churches. I, I went to college in Nebraska, so it would be like these small towns. And I, especially, you know, Elizabeth and I have both talked about, we knew like 20 kids in college who all came from this one church in this one town of 2,000 people in Nebraska. And, and as I got to know, I mean, some of those people are still good friends of mine, but as I got to know some of them and visit with them, what I realized was that here's what's happened at that church, is there were like four or five families— that one, were very intentional about raising their children to follow Jesus, and, you know, that was their number one priority. But two, they also said, we've got these other kids in our community and in our church and connected, even, you know, in kind of like, you know, very like marginal ways. And what we're going to do is we're just going to divvy them up intentionally and start having them over for dinner and meeting with them and mentoring them and discipling them. And really, as a result of those four or five families just saying, like, this is the thing that we want to invest our lives in, um, I mean, there are, and there are dozens of pastors and missionaries and people who are serving the kingdom because of that. The church should have a good, safe place to gather, right? I don't want to skip that in all the sort of, like, program things. One of the best ways of being reminded that we are the church to me is showing up and seeing those same couple of guys cleaning the ice off the, you know, off of the parking lot and putting out salt and taking care of our building. That's an example of taking ownership for the church. In gathered worship, we are supposed to be the church. We should gather together. That means, in the first place, that every one of us is here to sing and listen and pray. We're not just here to kind of receive this thing from the front. But thinking about that, one of, the, one of my favorite examples of someone who had the right attitude, I remember um, talking to, um, or I knew of this guy who was at this church plant, brand new, you know, again, kind of attempt to start a new church, some things had fallen apart, and they didn't have anyone leading worship, and they were using YouTube videos to, you know, to, to, to sing to, right, with the, the lyrics up on the screen, and nobody at the church liked that, and, you know, and this guy, it was driving him nuts, and he was feeling really discouraged, but what he did, instead of complain or leave the church, was he learned to play the guitar and took voice lessons and became, you know, over the course of, after a year of that work, right, the, the worship leader for the church, because he's like, you know, I'm the church, and it has this need. The church should be reaching out to the lost and trying to connect with people. This will be our last one, and we're going to talk about this one a little bit more in two weeks. But the story I always think of is hearing this guy talk about, um, he was pastoring this small kind of dying church in Nebraska um, near where I grew up. You know, again, it was like 50 people on a Sunday and was struggling. But somehow, he said, he, he doesn't know if it was a sermon that he preached or some books he read, but there was this one elderly lady who just came— developed this deep conviction that, like, this is not okay, and we need to reach our community. And so she just went on this mission, personally, 
and started inviting literally everyone in the town to church. <laughs> and, um, and he said that um, this woman, over the next two years, brought, increased their average attendance by more than 30 <laughs> a Sunday, um, just because of, you know, her passion to see that happen, right? She took ownership for that thing, and again, you saw the church grow. That's eight examples. I know that was a right. And I am not, first, I'm not saying you, you need to do all of those things for sure. And I'm not saying that you specifically need to do any of those things. But what I am saying is actually kind of different, and this is what we're going to wrap up with. I just want to speak out of that to three different groups of y'all and try to speak to you depending on where you're at in terms of the life of the church. First, out of all those stories, I want to speak to those of you that are super involved. There is a group of you um, in every church, there's like 10% of the people, 15% of the people that shoulder 70, you know, percent of the, the work. And if you are part of those super involved people, um, you are probably feeling exhausted at this point in the sermon because what you're feeling is I already do all of this stuff. And as that is you, first of all, what I want to say to you is thank you. You are someone who does very much understand this reality that we are the church. And I am not asking you to start some ministry or do anything else, because you're the people who maybe are most prone to feel that. The one thing I would ask you to think about is this. It is, how can I bring some people along? If you're in that really engaged place, right, you are doing a lot, but you do have the opportunity to say, what if I'm not just a doer, but I'm engaged in being a leader and maybe helping some other people who aren't as engaged to engage? So think about that. But mostly, if that's you, just thank you. Second group of people, those of you who are not super involved like that, but are involved, right, and are helping with some things. If that is you, again, first of all, thank you. I am grateful for the ways that you are engaged in the ministry of the church. Um, and it may well be that you are doing plenty, especially based on life circumstances, especially like if you have young kids or something, you know, as a, as a few of you guys do, there are limits to how engaged in the ministry of the church you can be. So I am not saying that you have to do more. But if you're in that involved level, here's the one question I would ask you to consider, um, which is, is there something that God is calling me to step up and engage with in doing? The reason I want you to consider that is because, while I'm very glad that you're involved, one of the dangers in the church is what I call the box-checking mentality, which is to say, you're like, I should be engaged at the church, so I find the thing, and I check that box, and then I just assume, you know, that's all that I'm ever going to think about or be called to do. And I am not saying that you necessarily are doing that, but that's the one thing that I just ask you to ask, right? If you are engaged, is there a way that maybe God is impressing on you? Even if that means changing what you're doing right now. Again, another of the dangers, I think, is that you can volunteer for a thing, and then it's 10 years later, and you're like, I don't feel called to this thing at all, but this is the thing I do. It's okay for you, too, to ask that. And last of all, those of us that are more on the margins of the church and that aren't really involved beyond kind of worshiping with us or whatever. The first thing I want to say to you is that I don't know the specifics of why that is, and for some of you, for a season, that is fine. Um, if you are somebody who is brand new, or if you are someone who is searching and sorting through spiritual questions for yourself, or if you are someone who's just in the midst of kind of severe brokenness in life, some of us are in those situations where just everything's falling apart, if that is you, and for that season, I just want you to be able to be here and rest and not feel that call. But if you aren't in that kind of place, then the question I'd ask you to consider is, again, just what would it look like 
to start taking ownership of this thing, to start seeking where God has called and gifted you to kind of minister and do the work of ministry and build up the church. And the reason I want you to ask that question is because there's, this shouldn't be a secret, but it feels like some spiritual secret. What you get out of this thing is oftentimes directly proportional to what you're pouring into it. That the reality of the world is that oftentimes we experience blessing as we are seeking to bless those around us. And my concern for some of us when we're on the margins of the church is that we're really just not, we're not, we're missing out on the blessing, right? We're missing out on the kind of joy of this thing because we haven't engaged. So if that is you, friend, the church needs you. You're a part of what it needs to be built up fully into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I would invite you to consider whether Jesus might be calling you in some way to engage. I intentionally am not telling you how, because as we've said, the idea of the church is that each of us as a part of the body is supposed to be, you know, our own kind of unique place. But I'm asking you to consider that. As we close, instead of telling a story or something to wrap it up, I just want to put those three questions on the screen again. Because they're what I'm asking you to think about this week. One, how do I long for Kish to look more like Jesus? Two, how can I make that a reality? And three, how can I help others make that a reality? Because again, this is the hope that I have in my heart. Some of you guys are doing this already so beautifully. Uh, A lot of the rest of you I know are engaging in really neat ways and growing. And my hope is that when we can get that we come to the end of this hard season that is coming a little bit down the road for Elizabeth and I, that, um, that we're all able to look around kind of and wonder and recognize that even though I may well be, you know, kind of taken out in a sense for a time, we can look around and say, man, we really understood that we were the church, and we have seen God bless that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your love for us. Thank you for constituting us as your body. Pray that you would be with us now as we seek to live as your people, as we gather, and as we scatter. Help us to be the church, Jesus. Amen.